Welcome to the Mark Driscoll Ministries podcast. To find more Bible teaching from Pastor Mark, visit markdriscoll.org. Thank you for listening and being a part of Mark Driscoll Ministries. And remember, it's all about Jesus. Well, howdy. Good to see y'all. We are in week two of the uh, series on Spirit-Filled Jesus. I'm gonna cover chapter two and three today. You can grab a free copy of the book on the way out. Uh, you get what you pay for, it is free. So lower your expectations, I love you. And uh, what we're gonna talk about today is really kind of the heart of what we are about here at the Trinity Church. We like to say that we open our Bibles to learn. So we're gonna do that and we open our lives to love. So it's really Bible teaching and relationships so that lives and legacies are transformed. Legacy is your family, your immediate and extended family. We want your life to be transformed by God's word through relationship with God and his people and your legacy to be impacted. And one uh, sort of illustration analogy I've used for years is kind of like links in a chain. I was thinking about it. I think my grandma on my dad's side was the first link in the chain. The men in my family are not great. We we're, we're Irish, and so we ended up here because of the potato famine. Uh, my relatives, honestly, were pirates. We started a, an international incident in County Cork, Southern Ireland, because we rode out and robbed a ship filled with wine. So we were not only thieves, we were drunk thieves. We were pirates. Um, yeah, and, uh, and I have one of my cousins. He was on cops, and he was, he was, uh, he was not a cop. And so... Um, <laughs> So there's a lot of work to be done. But my grandma, she met Jesus and loved Jesus. And then in my immediate family, my mom got uh, saved and healed in the 1970s-ish, I think it was, and loved Jesus and started praying for um, us kids. And so I got saved, became a Christian in college and married Grace. And now we've got five kids. And I was thinking about it today. Uh, Today, all of my siblings and all of our immediate family are all believers on both sides walking with Jesus. And I think my parents are up to 18 grandkids. It's hard to tell because they're fast. It's hard to count them, but I think there's around 18 grandkids. But I was thinking about it. You know, all it takes is one person to love and serve God. And then next thing you know, there's a whole legacy. There's a whole family that is walking with God together and they're linked by faith in Jesus together. And so the question today is, which link in the chain are you? And this is what we're gonna talk about today. Are you the first link in the chain? How many of you are first believer in your family? You're the first one and you're praying for the rest of the family, your in-laws or outlaws. So you're hoping that things transition. How many of you, you're a strong link in the chain? Maybe your mom and dad or your grandma and grandpa, no love serve Jesus and you're carrying on that family legacy. My real prayer is that none of us, none of you would be the, the last link in the chain. And I've seen this in many families where one person decides, I come from a Christian family, but I'm not going to live as a Christian. They then marry someone who's an unbeliever. They raise their kids apart from church in Christ. And that whole side of the family just sort of walks away from the family legacy and cuts themselves off from the richness of that family walking with God. Where are you? Where do you come from? What kind of life do you wanna live? What kind of legacy do you wanna leave? And I really wanna appeal to the men today, particularly to think in terms of legacy. So here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna look at this issue of family and legacy, and we're gonna look at it through the family of Jesus. Jesus' life we established last week is the most significant, impactful life, bar none, no equal in the history of the world. And what I wanna do today is I wanna pull back and I wanna look at Jesus' family, his immediate and his extended family, because Jesus' ministry was largely contingent upon the support of his family. Sometimes we think Jesus did it all by himself. Actually, he had a very godly and supportive family. And so some years ago, I was preaching through the gospel of Luke, took me a hundred sermons, two years, and I saw how Jesus' family lived by a personal relationship with God, the Holy Spirit. God, the Holy Spirit lived in the family members, worked in the family members, worked through the family members. And the key to a good family is each member of the family having an intimate relationship with God and living by the power of the Holy Spirit. So that's our thesis today. We're gonna start by looking at Jesus' extended family. And so he had a cousin named John. How many of you have a cousin, right? 
All right, Jesus had a great cousin. How many of you were close to your cousin? Jesus was close with his cousin. His name was John. And the promise, the prophecy was given before John was even born. There was a destiny on his life. And it was said that he will be great before the Lord. He must not drink wine or strong drink. It's not a sin to drink, but God gives somebody, the, some people this conviction, this personal uh, decree not to consume any alcohol. John is powerful. He lives out in the woods. He's a rural kid. He wears a Jedi robe. He eats bugs and honey. He yells at people for a living. He does not need any alcohol. This guy shouldn't even drink caffeinated coffee. Amen. He should just drink water. He's intense. He's all fine by himself. And some of you like John, you need to heed God's counsel for you that it may be okay according to scripture, but not according to conscience for you to consume. That's the story of John. He doesn't need alcohol. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit. Sometimes we drink to forget our problems rather than inviting the Holy Spirit to empower us to overcome our problems. And so it continues, even from where? His mother's womb, pre-born. John is a person. He has a name. He is chosen by God. He is filled with the Holy Spirit and he has a relationship with God from his mother's wombs. Now, how many of you mothers, this is encouraging, right? You think this baby, God knows. This baby, God sees. This baby, God could actually start a relationship with before I even hold them in my arms. Strong argument for personhood and the love of God to reach down and even seek and save from the womb. And he will go before him, before Jesus, in the spirit and power of Elijah, an Old Testament prophet. That's the power of the Holy Spirit. So this is his cousin, John. John is roughly six months older than Jesus. He starts his public ministry just prior to Jesus and he preaches and crowds flock to him. He then takes his ministry and he hands it all over to the Lord Jesus. Jesus' first followers come from John's ministry. John's ministry only lasted maybe six months and then he was beheaded and put to death. But in that short time, his life counted and mattered because he was filled with the Holy Spirit and he served the Lord in power. Jesus will say later that of every man born of woman, meaning everyone other than himself, Jesus declares that John the baptizer is the greatest man who has lived in the history of the world. That's a massive statement. You and I today, if we took a poll and asked who's the greatest person in the history of the world other than Jesus, it is very doubtful that most people, in fact, any people would vote for John. But Jesus casts his vote for John. John was great because the power of God was great in him and through him. This shows us that the power of God is available even to children to walk in relationship with God and the destiny that God has for them. So that's Jesus' cousin. And then this is his um, aunt, Elizabeth, uh, John's mom. She lives in a rural area. Think small town, dozens, maybe hundreds of people, small town, poor family. They come from a ministry family. There was a lineage called the Levites, and this was one generation after the next, handing off ministry to their children, their grandchildren for generations. To some degree, it's kind of like that with our family. Grace's dad pastor to church and her mom and dad serve the Lord in ministry and we serve the Lord in ministry. It was kind of like that, one generation to the next. And Elizabeth really, really, really wanted a baby. She wanted to be a mom. And she prayed and she wept and the answer was always no. And she reached that age where she was beyond childbearing years and, and that hope was dissipated and gone. And what was interesting is her and her husband they were sometimes discouraged and sometimes distressed, but they, they never disbelieved in God. They trusted in God. And it was very hard for them. There was an Old Testament couple, Abraham and Sarah had a similar situation. They really wanted a baby. They couldn't have a baby. So they came up with a crazy plan where they would have Abraham get a girlfriend and give birth to a child that to this day is a geopolitical situation. I'm not even kidding. That didn't go very well, okay? But this couple, they decided we would rather walk in God's will without a child than go have a child apart from God's will. And then God did something amazing. He allowed Elizabeth, even though she was older, beyond childbearing years, 
to get pregnant with a son, a son who would be a prophet. His name is John. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied over Mary. So they live far apart. They come together. Mary is pregnant with Jesus. Elizabeth is pregnant with John. Here's the prophet and the Messiah, the old covenant and the new covenant. They come together and Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit and she prays and prophesies over the younger Mary. Do you see a theme here? Cousin filled with the Holy Spirit. Aunt filled with the Holy Spirit. Not only that, uncle, Luke 167, his name is Zacharias, married to Elizabeth, and he is the father of John. It says that he was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied over his son at birth. Prophecy is predicting and preparing God's people for the future. And so what makes Jesus' extended family great? Everyone has this personal, intimate, deep, practical relationship with God through the Holy Spirit. They're led by God's power. They're living in God's presence. They're serving God in ministry. This is a devout, mature, godly ministry family, okay? Next, let's look at this as well. They had ministry leaders who were in authority over them. So what happens is um, Jesus is born, uh, John is born and the custom would have been take the baby to the temple, their equivalent of the church and do a baby dedication. The baptism would be in the next chapter when Jesus is a grown man here, he is a baby and they're taking the, the boys, it would have been customary to dedicate them. Well, this would be under pastoral leadership. Your family needs pastoral leadership. You're, and this was a ministry family, right? Zechariah is a pastor. His wife grew up in a pastor's home. This was a ministry couple and family, but even a pastor needs a pastor. And I'm happy to report, I've got a couple of great pastors and everybody needs a pastor, including the pastor. So here the pastor and his wife, they get a pastor. It had been revealed to him, Simeon, this pastor serving at the temple by the Holy Spirit, that he would not see death before he'd seen the Lord's Christ and he came in the spirit into the temple. So spirit-filled mom, spirit-filled dad, spirit-filled son, go to the temple, spirit-filled pastor. Everyone is filled with the Holy Spirit. This means living in God's presence, being aware of God's presence in your life. This is living by God's power so that you can walk in the will and the wisdom of God. They have a personal relationship with God, the Holy Spirit. And so does the ministry leader who is over them. What about Jesus' immediate family? We'll turn the page and we'll look at Jesus' immediate family. Here's what I want you to know. Not only is Jesus amazing, so is his family. And what we want for you is to walk with the Lord and also for your family to serve the Lord. So Jesus had a dad and a mom. We'll talk about them in a moment. Um, Jesus' father, we don't know a whole lot about. His name is Joseph. He doesn't say a lot, but he does a lot. How many of you had a dad like that? Your dad didn't say much, but he did much. So Joseph, his dad, keeps getting these angelic visits and he does exactly what God tells him to do. He's a godly and obedient man. But Joseph is engaged to a gal named Mary. Now here's their situation, small town. How many of you grew up in a really small town, right? Small town, in school you're like, there's three boys, there's three girls. Pretty much we know who we're gonna marry, amen? You're like, rock, paper, scissors, Sally. Okay, well, we got this all figured out, right? They grew up small town, they would have grown up together, they knew each other, family knew each other. They are betrothed, that is more serious than engagement. And Joseph is probably a teenager. Mary, most think she's 12, 13, 14 years of age. A lot of pressure. They grew up in a small town. Their home was probably about the size of the parking stall where you put your car. They perhaps did not have access to education. They didn't travel much. These are poor, rural, hardworking, peasant teenagers. How many of you, this freaks you out? How many of you right now, you watch your son playing Fortnite and you think he's not ready to raise God, amen? <laughs> you look at your 14 year old daughter and you're like, she's not ready for a gerbil, let alone Jesus, amen? <laughs> she's just not ready for that, okay? 
So this is the context. Let's just sand some of the veneer off and look at reality. So an angel shows up. Angels are ministers and messengers. Only two angels are named in the Bible, Michael and Gabriel. Gabriel shows up, says to Mary, behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son and call his name Jesus. That's a derivative of Joshua. It means that God saves his people from their sins. He will be great and will be called son of the most high. This is a big deal. Your son will also be the son of God. Can you imagine being Mary? I'm rural, I'm not in a big city. I'm a young woman, I'm not a mature woman. I, we're broke, we're not even married yet. This complicates everything because once she starts showing and they're not yet married, this is going to be a hard narrative to continue forward, right? Oh, I've been faithful to you. I'm, I'm, I'm a pregnant virgin, right? This family is taking on a lot of responsibility. Well, the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. Jesus will come as a king. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom will be no end. And then Mary's got a question, reasonable question, amen? How's this gonna work? How, how, I'm a virgin, we're not engaged. Uh, where do we get this baby? How will this be since I am a, a virgin, a godly, devout, faithful young woman? The angel answered her, what? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit does something supernatural in their family. Here's what I want you to know. The Holy Spirit also can do something supernatural in your family, right? What they're looking at is, is, is an impossible situation that God makes possible by the person, the presence, the power of the Holy Spirit. This is where the hope for your family is the presence of God, okay? And so he goes on, the angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power, because when the Holy Spirit comes, the power of God comes, will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy, sinless, the son of God, the son of God. Jesus' life is the most significant life ever lived. His ministry is the most significant legacy ever left, but his dad was godly. His mom was filled with the Holy Spirit. She then is going to worship and sing and praise and obey God. Furthermore, his extended family, relatives, aunt, uncle, cousin, all love, serve the Lord and are filled with the Holy Spirit. Here's what I need you to know. They didn't have money, but they had the Holy Spirit. They did not have access to a great education, but they had the Holy Spirit. They did not live in a great, beautiful, amazing town with lots of amenities and opportunities, but they had the Holy Spirit. God gives to you what you need to live a life that is pleasing to him. And I need to say this, this will be countercultural. Some of this will be offensive. The rest will be very offensive. So let me just start with the offensive. We live in Scottsdale when we tend to think that, that the most important resources are not spiritual in the raising of children and having of a family. If we could just make more money, we could put our kids in the best school. We can get our kids the best coach. We can get our kids the best tutor, the best teacher. We can get them on the best sports club. Then they can get in to the best college and then they can get the best job and then they can live in the best neighborhood and then they can drive the best car. And the best thing for them is the presence of the Holy Spirit at work through you and through them in your family. Because you and I, we are not just raising children, we're raising children that have a soul that belongs to God and parenting is deeply, profoundly spiritual work. This is why God gives the Holy Spirit not only to the child, but also to the parent because it is spiritual work. This is where parenting according to God's principles is different than the world in which we live. The world in which we live tries to reduce parenting down to assembling Ikea furniture. Step one, step two, step three, step four, your kid grows up to be amazing, good job. Parenting is not a paint by numbers kit. Parenting is not Ikea furniture. How many of you have realized that if you have two children, they're different? They're totally different. And so what works with one child does not work with the other child. And so you need the Holy Spirit, number one, so that God can work on you. How many of you have realized that the children are not the only ones that need work in the family? Have any of you noticed this? How many of you are honest parents? 
You're like, I was fine till these children showed up and exposed all my flaws. Children expose our flaws, amen? If you're selfish, your child shows up, they're gonna expose your flaw. If you're lazy, your child shows up, they will expose your flaw. If you have any emotional unhealth, they will find it and torment you. They will expose it, okay? If you have control issues, <laughs> they will test you and try you, okay? And some of you are like, no, don't say that. We're pregnant with our first child. Good luck, we're praying for you. I'm just telling you, this will be one of the most sanctifying experiences of your entire life. Amen. So, okay, my wife said, amen. We got five kids, we love them all. And some of them were more work than others. If I'm just being totally honest, okay? And those are the ones with my personality. Nonetheless, God gives the Holy Spirit to the parents to grow us, mature us, and shape us. God can give the Holy Spirit to the children to learn, grow, and shape them. And the Holy Spirit has access to the child's heart, mind, will, emotions, and the parents. God is using the family relationships and experiences to shape and grow everyone. And that's where we learn here that the whole family is filled with the Holy Spirit and lives by the power of the Holy Spirit. What about Jesus' siblings? Some of you didn't know this. Mary and Joseph consummated their marriage after Jesus was born. They went on to have other children, right? On one occasion, they say, your mother and brothers are here and your sisters, they're here to see you. How many of you wish that Jesus was your brother? Wouldn't that have been amazing? A perfect sibling. That's amazing. But there would be a downside because I was thinking about it. Every time something happened, it would be your fault. It would always be your fault. Mom, Jesus and I got in a fight. Well, spank yourself. It obviously wasn't his fault. Okay, so it's always me. It is, he's perfect. Why can't you be like Jesus? We got you a bracelet. What would Jesus do? So every time you need to make a decision, you just look at that bracelet and try and be perfect like your brother, not a disappointment like you are. Okay, thank you very much. Okay, so. Jesus had brothers and sisters, he had a family, and two of his brothers, their names are James and Jude. Two books of the Bible are written by them bearing their names. So the books of James and Jude are written by Jesus' brothers. They did not entirely believe that he was God until he rose from death, and then they saw their brother risen from death. They converted and worshiped him as God. This is a big deal for a devout Jewish person because the 10 commandments declare you should only worship God alone. And if you worship any false God, you go to hell. They're worshiping their brother. How many of you would not worship your big brother? Big brother is the Greek word for demon. Big brothers do horrible things to siblings. How many of you had a big brother? And just me saying it, your nervous eye twitch came back and you're needing to look up your therapist on your phone to process what happened to you as a child. Big bro I was a big brother. How do I know that big brothers are evil? I was a big brother. Big brothers do horrible things to siblings. If you were to start a religion as a big brother, the last person to show up would probably be your siblings, amen? Jesus, brothers, worship him as God. They worship as God. And here they're listed in the Bible, Jude chapter one, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, brother of James. So these are pastors who love, worship and serve Jesus. Their brother is sinless savior in God. They're trusting their entire eternity to their sibling. They write two books of the Bible bearing their name. And furthermore, they endure great opposition and suffering because of their love and worship for their brother. Now, outside of the Bible, History records what happened to James. I'll read it to you. James, the half-brother of Jesus, was executed. Now just, he was thrown off the temple, still alive, and then stoned to death. So they come to James and they say, stop being a pastor, stop preaching about your brother, or we're going to kill you. And he said, you know what? I saw my brother come back from death. You can't scare me. If you kill me, I'll tell him you said hi, okay? I'm paraphrasing. And then what happens is they take him up to the top of the temple and throw him off. That would be like taking someone up to the top of the church and throwing them off in the name of God. He then hits the ground, right? His church is there and he's not dead. He's obviously in very painful near death circumstances and they throw rocks and stone him to death and they put him to an open public execution. Let me submit this to you. Jesus' family had tremendous adversity. I mean, growing up, the, the story in town of Jesus' mother was that 
that Jesus' paternity was a mystery because she had been unfaithful to Joseph and that Joseph was just a, a simpleton and a fool and an idiot. Oh, virgin birth. Yay, Joseph, that's adorable. Your, 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 your wife is the one mentioned in Isaiah that the virgin will give birth to a son. Sure, it's Mary in the, in the rural town from the poor family. Sure, yeah, you're, you are a fool and, and she is a dishonest woman. Jesus' whole life was one where he was constantly maligned. His family's reputation was destroyed. They then had to watch Jesus get falsely accused, tried, executed, murdered, crucified. And then they have to watch the other brother go into ministry. The other brother then go into ministry. One get murdered. How does a family make it through suffering? How does a family make it through adversity? by having the power of God to get them through the problems of the world, okay? And we're gonna hit this and we hit suffering a little bit later. What happens is ultimately they murder James. Who then steps forward? We need to, we need to fill the position on the team. History outside of the Bible says this, that as James was dying, he quoted his brother Jesus and he prayed for his enemies, Father, forgive them. This is a godly family. One archeological expert then says, quote, when James is murdered, it is Simon who takes over leadership of the movement. Jesus steps up, they murder him. He rises from death and returns to heaven. Two brothers step up, James and Jude. We're here to serve our savior and brother, Jesus. Boom, they murder James. Next brother, Simon steps up. I'll fill the gap. You're gonna fill the gap for the guy that got murdered? Who, who signs up for that job? We shot the last guy, I'll take it. You don't serve and worship your brother as a devout Jew to the point of death unless you are convinced that he is God. And so Jesus' family not only has Jesus in ministry, but insofar as we can tell, at least three brothers that are on the front lines of the forward progress of the church. A couple of things I wanna point out to you from Jesus' family. Three facts about Jesus' family faith. Number one, the gravitational center for Jesus' family was God. Okay, this is crucial. I've said this in the past, but I'll echo it again today. Your family your immediate and extended family needs to decide what is the gravitational center of your universe around which everything orbits, okay? So we're all here today in church. I got nothing else to do. Let's talk about it, okay? So what other than Jesus, who or what other than Jesus is commonly placed as the gravitational center of a family system and home? Give me some examples. Kids, is it possible that the children are the center of the family? Yes, it's a horrible place to put a child because you're putting the child in the place of God, okay? God is to be the center. And if every member of the family is growing closer to God, that's how the family grows closer together. Idolatry is when someone or something takes God's place. Idolatry is oftentimes when a good thing becomes a God thing, thereby making it a bad thing. Children are a blessing, but they're not God. They don't give the life that God gives. They don't give the health that God gives. So what happens in a family system where the children are the gravitational center, you ask the parents, why do you stay married? We stay married for the kids. Why do you guys work so hard to make money for the kids? Why do you guys architect your whole life for the kids? What happens if the kids disappoint or fail us? We are wrecked because our God died or our God failed. Grace and I are at that age. I turned 48 this week. We're at that age now. We've been faithfully married 26 years. We got five kids. I love them with all my heart. But I'll just tell you this. We are at that age where couples that are in our sort of age bracket, some of them, even Christians that we have known, their marriages are absolutely spinning out of control and falling apart. You know why? The children were the center of the gravitational universe of the family. 
And what happens is eventually children get a driver's license and a car and they leave. And if the center of your universe leaves, your relationship spins out of orbit. Do you know what I'm talking about? Grace and I are at the point now, when the kids were little, it was very busy. If you have little kids, you're exhausted. Okay, let me just tell you that. And if you have sons, you're constantly on suicide watch because little boys are always trying to kill themselves. That's just, I don't know why, they just are, right? Oh, it's sharp. I'll hold it while I climb the highest point in the house. What in the world? Okay, so when, you're, when your kids are little, it's exhausting because they're constant attention. As they get older, it's more emotional energy. Our kids are at the age now, like literally in the morning, they drive themselves to school. It's amazing. It's, am, it's amazing. Like, bye. Hey, what do you want to do today? Because hey, Grace and I, now we have time. And some couples, if the only thing holding you together is the children, when the children go away, you go apart. Okay, another example. Since I'm encouraging you, find something else, okay? <laughs> Everything I say is offensive, true, and helpful, okay? So if it's not the kids, what else could be the gravitational center of the family universe? Money. Make more money, make more money, make more money, make more money, make more money. What about make more relationships, make more wisdom, make more godliness? We live in Scottsdale, right? Or some of us do, some of us just visit. The whole point here is to make money, to give status, not to make money, to glorify God and build relationships. If your goal is to make as much money as possible, here's what you will do. This is what idols require. Idols require sacrifices. And we tend to think, oh, those primitive people that worship idols, we worship idols. Like I live in this zip code, not that zip code. I drive this car, not that car. My kids go to this school, not that school. My kids play for this team, not that team. It's our way of showing our status. Do you need to make money? Yes, that's not a trick question. Your children need to eat. And so I would encourage you to feed them. On their behalf, I would encourage you to feed them. It's good to have a job. Jesus' dad had a job. Jesus worked at the job with his dad. But if you put the job and the making of money at the center of the family, then everybody's gotta make a sacrifice for the idol. We don't have time for God. We don't have time for prayer. We don't have time for Bible study. We don't have time for service. We don't have time for relationships. You know why? The job, the career, the income, the status, the possessions, the security is ultimately the center of the family. Everyone and everything orbits around it and we make sacrifices for it, including the sacrifice of relationship with God and one another. Anything else? Spouse, sometimes it's the most domineering personality in the home. It's like a prison riot, right? And it, it's sort of winner take all. So if dad is the overbearing personality, domineering personality, everybody and everything orbits around. Don't make your dad mad. Don't ask your dad. He's a God. He sits there in the throne, the one with the remote. Leave him alone, right? Or mom is the domineering, overbearing, emotional one. And everybody's like, don't get mom upset. She's like a grenade with a pin pulled. She gets really emotional. Just do what mom says or just you know, run for your life, whatever mom says. <laughs> or it's one of the kids has learned that they can literally cause a hostage situation by freaking out. And as a result, someone in the family becomes the gravitational center because they're, they're stubborn, because they're wayward, because they're foolish, because they're rebellious, because they're domineering, because they're overbearing. Let me say this. The only way for you, your immediate and extended family to be healthy is if God is the gravitational center, everyone and everything is connected to him, following in his priorities. And as you grow closer to the Lord, your family will grow closer together. If you put anyone or anything in the center of the family, eventually it will fail because it is not God. And as a result, your family and your life will implode and explode. So number one, the gravitational center of the universe for Jesus' family was God. Number two, each member had a personal relationship with the Holy Spirit. Right, aunt, uncle, cousin, siblings, all filled with the Holy Spirit, all walking in a personal relationship with God. How is your relationship with God. 
And number three, each member of Jesus' family was a servant. Mary served the Lord in her family. Joseph served the Lord in his family. All the family members, as I articulated, they served. You and I, we live in this mythical world where we tend to think we will raise better children if we can pay greater servants to serve them. If they just had a better nanny, better school, better teacher, better tutor, better coach, um, then we would have better children. Now, the key to raising a human being is to teach them, as Jesus said, I am not here to be served, but to serve. The greatest life that has ever lived is the life of Jesus, who is the greatest servant who has ever lived. You will raise selfish kids if they're only being served. You will raise godly kids if they learn to serve. See, much of what I'm telling you is anti-valley culture, okay? I love you. Let me, just, let me just be honest with you if I can for a moment. We live in a valley that has a gravitational force against biblical families, relationships, and parenting. It just does. And you need to no longer be conformed to the pattern of this world. The world in its wisdom does not know God. And, and I hear it all the time. I hear it. I, I've literally had families tell me, um, hey, I'll see you in six months. Why six months? It's select baseball season. So we're Christians 50% of the time and 50% of the time our religion is baseball. Baseball is a great sport, but it's a bad religion. And what every parent thinks is my kid will get drafted and pay for college. No, they won't. Because your kid played against my kid and none of them are gonna get paid to do this. It's an awesome sport. It's a horrible religion. My three boys all played select ball. My daughter ran track. We're a busy and active family, but God has to be the center. I even hear it on the weather in the valley. I've been here a few years trying to figure it out. They say, well, during the summer, it's hot, everybody's gone. And during the school year, it's nice out. And so we're busy and we have sports. And during the holidays, we go to the mountains or San Diego. So when are you a Christian? Not when it's hot, not when it's nice. Well, that's all we got right? We've got heaven and hell. Those are our two seasons. That's all we got. And if in heaven season you're busy and in hell season you're gone, you're never a Christian. And let me tell you this, parents, it goes really fast. Our kids are now getting older and ready to launch. This time moves quick. And it is having God as the center, teaching your children to serve and making God a priority, making God a priority First priority, first in the schedule, first in the budget, first in the priority, not last, because we never get to the last thing on the list. So right now, as I'm telling you this, some of you are very discouraged. Some of you are thinking of family members that don't know the Lord. You're thinking of someone with your last name who is wayward and prodigal. For some of you, this is your parents. You're like, they don't know the Lord. They're reaching the finish line. I'm very worried. For some of you parents, your kids, you're worried about them. And some of them have grandkids and you're worried about generations being unfaithful to the Lord. Two things that God laid on my heart as I was praying for you this week. Number one, you cannot be the Holy Spirit for members of your family. You can't. You can't save anybody. What tends to happen is members of our family, they burden us. And so we determine that we will do God's work for him. So the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin. How many of you have tried to do that with your family and it didn't go well? Good thing I'm here. I wanna tell you about your sin, dad. He's like, you know, I really don't wanna hear it. Uh, I did spank you when you were little and I'm willing to do that again. You know, How, the Holy Spirit also leads. How many of you have tried to lead family members and they're not following? The Holy Spirit teaches. How many of you have tried to lecture your family and they're not taking notes? The Holy Spirit controls and brings the spirit of self-control. How many of you have tried to control family members and control outcomes for decisions that they make? Is it just me? Have you tried this? We all have, amen? We've all tried this. You're not the Holy Spirit. You can't be the Holy Spirit. They need the Holy Spirit. I want you to have concern for them, but not burden for them. 
I want you to take that burden and say, Holy Spirit, I can't save anybody. I can't control anybody. I can't teach anybody. I, I can't lead. They need you, Lord. I need you, they need you. And they need you like I need you. So Holy Spirit, I'm gonna give this burden to you and I'm gonna invite you to pursue them. I have concern for them, but I'm not going to carry that burden for them. After the 9 a.m., there were couples sitting in their seat, bawling and praying. Some of you need to unburden and hand that burden to the Holy Spirit, okay? And this is faith. Faith is trusting that the same God who encountered you will encounter them. And it's trusting them ultimately into the hands of God. But number two, I do wanna encourage you, you are responsible for you and the Holy Spirit wants to mature you. So you can't decide whether or not somebody is gonna mature, but you can decide whether or not you're gonna mature, amen? You cannot decide whether or not they will have a personal relationship with God through the Holy Spirit, but you can decide that you will have a personal relationship with God through the Holy Spirit. So in the rest of the talk, I wanna talk about maturing by the power of the Holy Spirit. And my big motive for this series is when it comes to the ministry of the Holy Spirit, either it is no teaching or bad teaching that is often the case. And what I see in the Bible is the Holy Spirit empowers the human life of Jesus on the earth. And then Jesus sends the Holy Spirit to bring the same power to us so that we can walk in the hope, health and healing of Jesus. And so the Holy Spirit allows us to mature to become more like Jesus. So what I wanna look at now is uh, how to measure maturity. Okay, figure out where you're at and then what maturity looks like for you and also encourage it for family and friends. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 13, 11, when I was a child, a little kid, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, grown adult, I put away childish ways. What he's saying is this, that we mature, okay? That we have these life stages that we go through. So Jesus at three was perfect for three and mature. At 13, he was mature for 13. At 23, he was mature for 23. At 33, he was mature for 33. We measure maturity by life stage and age, okay? Which means if some of you are doing the same things that you were doing a decade ago, you're immature. And it may not have even been sin. It was just something that was of that age, but now you need to outgrow that. I'll give you an example. Let's say you're in the grocery store and there's a small child that has not had a nap and is very frustrated and has a cold and just reaches the end and throws themselves on the floor and has a complete nuclear meltdown fit. We would look at that and say, well, they're a kid. Now, if their mother did the exact same thing right next to the child, we would say that's immature and unacceptable behavior, ma'am. You need to get up and stop flailing. And so we determine maturity by life stage and age. But let me say this, physical maturity and spiritual maturity are not identical. Physical maturity tends to happen more naturally. Spiritual maturity requires greater intentionality. There's a tremendous myth that is in the culture and it is this. You'll grow older and not always true, amen? How many of you are older and you know a few fools? You know a few fools. Just because you get older does not mean you get wiser. The physical and spiritual growth are not identical. One requires more intentionality than the other. So I'm gonna share with you now something that many people do not know about Jesus. When we read the early church creeds regarding Jesus, the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed in the fourth century, we looked at it last week. It says that he was born of the Virgin Mary and he died on the cross for our sins. It misses his maturing. There is an account in Luke chapter two, the child that is Jesus grew, maturing, became strong, filled with wisdom and the favor of God was upon him right? That's the, the hand of the Holy Spirit is on him and in him and through him. Jesus grew. You can grow. Your, your, your family members can grow. Your children can grow. Jesus here is 12 years of age, roughly. Let me just say this. Don't curse your kids. People do this all the time. Oh, they're two. Raising kids. People feel free to say things to parents. It's ridiculous. How many of you women have been pregnant and everybody starts telling you what to do? Oh, let me tell you what to do. No, I see your kid. We're at the store. They're up on the shelf. Like, no, you don't tell me anything. You go take care of your own thing. 
I, when our kids were two, they come up, oh, no, nope, they're, they're gonna have the what twos, the, the terrible twos. Well, no, they don't have to have the terrible twos. They can have the terrific twos. Don't curse my kids. Don't speak that over them. Oh, these are the fatal fours and the stinky sixes and the awful eights. And you're like, really? At what point do we stop making excuses and start providing hope? When my, my daughters turned to the teen years, oh, then I got it. Everybody was ready to prophesy doom. And they'd come up. Oh, your daughter's gonna be a teenager. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. It's horrible. Just hang in there and eventually, maybe they won't be pregnant. Good luck. Well, thank you, Barnabas, for the tremendous word of encouragement. So I will just sit here and self-medicate till they're 30. And then we'll revisit our relationship and hope it's not a dumpster fire. That's amazing. Thank you so much. No, right? It's craziness. Jesus is 12 and what? Maturing. See, we have this culture that sort of excuses immaturity and, and non-maturing. No, that's, that's not how this is supposed to work. Luke 2.52, Jesus increased in wisdom, stature, favor with God and man. I'll say something that is very controversial, but I am convinced it is very biblical and very helpful. And that is that there is a difference between committing a sin and learning through experience. Okay, Jesus grew and Jesus matured and he did so through experience. Religious parenting does not distinguish between learning through experience and sinning. How many of your parents punished you and disciplined you for learning through trial and error? Let me be clear. While on the earth, before and during and after his ministry on the earth, Jesus was and is sinless, perfect. But he grew. You know what that means? He learned through experience. We're gonna deal with this when we get to the suffering section where it says that he was made perfect through his suffering. The only way that human beings can learn is through experience. There is a difference between sinning and rebelling against God and being human and learning through experience. We are to repent of sin, but we can't repent of being human. Let me ask you this. When you think, think about it with Jesus. Uh, let's say he learned to write out the Hebrew alphabet. Do you think it was perfect the first time? Or the motor skills, you had to figure out how to do it. I don't know if Jesus had a bike, but do you think the first time he got on the bike, it was no training wheels and he went off a jump and did a backflip and then landed a dismount and said, there you go, BMX Messiah, nailed it. You know, I mean, <laughs> how many of you, the first time you picked up an instrument, it was not a joyful noise. It was just noise, but you figure it out, right? You figure it out by doing it. Here's what happens with religious parenting. They don't understand that Jesus grew and matured and there is a part of our humanity that is not necessarily sinful. How many of you grew up in a religious household where you had to be perfect and everything was a big deal and you were disciplined for things that weren't even sins. They were, they were you learning through, through experience. It leads to one of two things with a child, either great pride, this I'm better than the other kids, I obey the rules, I don't make any mistakes or a very discouraged child. I, it doesn't matter what I do, it's never good enough. Unless I do everything perfect the first time, I get criticized and I'm a disappointment. You know what? Jesus grew, Jesus increased, Jesus learned, Jesus is God. I don't expect you or your kids to be better than God. So how can you mature like your Messiah? Four things. This is how Jesus grew. He here is about, as I said, 12 years of age. Number one, Jesus knew the scriptures. Uh, Luke two, they found him, Jesus in the temple. You know why? His parents lost him. I love how honest the Bible is, right? I mean, how many of you have lost a child? I mean, you found him, you know, but you lost him for a while. 
Some of you are in your like, I can't believe, I can't believe that people would lose their child. Well, obviously you're not a parent. We just figured out who the non-parents are. Every parent who has had a child at some point has misplaced the child. <laughs> Even Jesus' parents. So they went to the temple, they're walking home. And you know, there's a big caravan crowd of people. Mary and Joseph, Mary's probably talking to the ladies. Joseph's talking to the guys. And they kind of, hey, hey, uh, I thought you had Jesus. <laughs> what? Right, row. Uh, I, thought, I thought you had Jesus. No, I don't. Oh, we lost God. We lost this. I don't know what happens now and I'm not sure who to pray to. So, I mean, the whole thing is complicated, right? They lost God. How many of you have lost a kid? You know what that feeling is like. I can still remember we were in a store and our kids were little. I think, I don't know, maybe we had all five at the time and we lost one. We couldn't find them. And I'm thinking, you know, 80% is good in school, but not when you go to the mall and come home with 80% of the kids. We got to find this other one. So I'm screaming, I'm yelling, I can't find the kid. Where are you? The kid decided we were gonna play hide and go seek, did not notify the parentals that we were playing this game. Those circular clothes racks climbed in very quiet and just hid there. Well, I am freaking out. I'm quoting the Old Testament. I'm calling for security. I'm locking doors. I'm having a complete panic attack. And my kid is like, I'm so good at hide and seek. <laughs> Sin or trial and error. I could go either way on that one. Okay. No, it was, <laughs> we'd been playing hide and seek and they didn't know you don't do it at the store. It was, it was trial and error. But if they did it again, sin. Okay, that's what I'm saying. So they lost Jesus and then they found him. That had to be big. Woo! Oh, yes. We found Jesus. Yay! Hey, okay. In the temple. So he's, he's at the Old Testament church sitting among the the teachers, the theologians, the guys with more degrees than Fahrenheit, all the, all, all, the, all the scholars, listening to them and asking them questions. I wish I was there. That, that was, well, what do you guys think it means in Isaiah when the virgin's gonna have a baby? Who do you think that might be? <laughs> Any guesses? <laughs> that, that had to be, I think that was fun. That had to be fun for him. It's like Jeopardy and he's Alex Trebek at 12. Like, <laughs> and all who heard him were amazed, mind blown at his understanding and his answers. You know why? Jesus knew the scriptures, but Jesus learned the scriptures like you and I learned the scriptures. Jesus learned the scriptures like your kids learn the scriptures, like your grandkids learn the scriptures. The first way to truly mature is to be in the word of God and have the word of God in you. This is the most translated, best-selling, least read book in the history of the world. Most people have a Bible and they don't read it. They watch TV for hours, surf the internet forever and never hear a word from God because they never open the word of God. Right? I love you. Read the Bible, memorize the Bible, study the Bible. Make sure that every member of your family has a good age appropriate copy of the Bible and use things like the YouVersion app, Grace Loves It. Whatever gets you into the word of God is good. You cannot mature apart from the word of God because as your body needs food, water, air, and shelter, Jesus says that you cannot live on bread alone, but you need every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. It is the word of God that feeds your soul so that you can spiritually mature. If Jesus needed to learn the Bible, we all need to learn the word of God, amen? Number two, Jesus lived in constant relationship with God the Father. They find him and he says, I must be in my father's house. That was his language for their equivalent of church. Okay, so here we are. This is the Father's house. You need to know that God is a Father. He loves you. He'll never leave you, never forsake you. If you belong to the Lord Jesus, you are adopted into the family of God forever. And here's what I need you to know. Number one, you always need your Father. Number two, you always need your family. It doesn't matter how old you are, you still need to start as a child of God. God is your Father. I'm 48 and I'll be honest with you, when I was 28, I knew that I needed God as my father. Now that I'm 48, 
I know to even a greater degree how much I need to have a relationship with God as my father. I need him to parent me so I can parent my kids. I need him to lead me so we can lead our family. You need to have a relationship with God where he is your father and you are living under his authority. And number two, part of God's family, the church. What Jesus says is I'm in my father's house. This would be their equivalent of church. Let me just say this. It is incredibly important that God's people gather together as God's family in God's presence. Imagine what your family would be like if you never got together. It wouldn't be close, intimate, warm, healthy, or helpful. So it is with the family of God. Some of you have an amazing family and we want church to be an additional blessing. Some of you do not have an amazing family, but church becomes family of God, where you can find older people who are like mothers and fathers and people of your life stage who are like brothers and sisters. And together we do life as the family of God under the leadership of the Father, amen? So that's why we're here. And this is why I wanna honor you. I wanna thank you, I wanna encourage you for being in God's house today because we are the family of God. This is how Jesus matured. If Jesus, who's perfect, needs to study the Bible and go to church, we all for sure need to learn the word of God and be in the presence of God with the people of God. Third thing, Jesus respected authority. If you're a parent here with a child, this is where you nudge them, send me a thank you email and make sure that your kids write this down, amen? Question number one, you ready? No enthusiasm whatsoever. Okay, I'll ask it anyways. Was Jesus a perfect child? He was perfect no sin of any sort or kind. Jesus' mom and dad, were they perfect parents? No. So Jesus, who is perfect, submitted to imperfect parental authority. How many of your kids have tried this on you? I disagree. You're not always right. You make mistakes. Hey, you're not Jesus. And he submitted to imperfect parents. I'll read it to you. Jesus went down to them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to who? Them, mother and father. The Bible says to honor and to obey mother and father. And here's, Jesus says elsewhere that a house divided against itself can't stand. So what the kids try and do, they try and divide and conquer strategy. So the kid goes to mom, tries to get mom to side with them to oppose Dad, doesn't work, goes to dad, tries to get dad to oppose mom. Parents need to stand together and the child needs to be submissive to mother and father, both of them. Both of them, both of them. And you know, you've got a crisis and a problem in the home. I'm gonna go from preaching to meddling for just a moment. But when it is, wait till your father gets home. What that means is you don't obey your mother and father, you only obey your father, that's a problem. So let me tell you a little secret, parents, grandparents, you cultivate a culture of respect for authority by respecting authority. If you're the parent who's always you know, rebelling, cursing out authority, I disagree, always ranting and raving, you are sowing the seeds of your own destruction in your family. If you are a woman who is constantly berating your husband in the presence of the children, don't be shocked to find that the children then are berating you. That ultimately obedience, submissiveness, honor and loyalty goes up and blessing comes down. And if it is cursing that goes up, it is cursing that comes down. Mary and Joseph honor the Lord and they raise Jesus to honor not only the Lord, but the authority that God has placed over him. And let me say this, we live in a demonic culture of rebellion. Rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, the Bible says. We tend to think that all children are to be given a right of rebellion. Oh, they're teenagers, they just rebel, that's what they do. That's not what Jesus did in his teen years. That's not normative, that's not necessary. Well, wait till your 20s. You know, you're just dating, relating, fornicating, and regretting. We call that the 20s. But you know, you know, it's just, just the way it is today. You know, that's how kids are today. No, that's how kids are without the spirit of God. 
That's how kids are without the wisdom of God. That's how kids are without the fear of God. That's godless. Our goal is to live countercultural kingdom lives, not to let the gravity of this world drag us and our family down, but let the spirit of God lift us up. And I'm not saying that we'll be perfect or have perfect families or perfect children, but I believe that we can live in the presence of God, we can live by the power of God, and we can live countercultural kingdom lifestyles that give this world that isn't working some hope of an alternative by the grace of God. Okay? Can I just be really clear? If you do what everyone else is doing, your family will be godless. So don't just say, well, that's what, that's what people do. That's what godless people do, okay? And our goal is not to be converted, but to walk with Jesus in hopes of seeing them converted, okay? And so Jesus respected authority. This is unbelievable to me. If there was ever anyone who could look at authority and say, I don't need it, it would be Jesus. If there was anyone that could look at authority and say, look, I know more than you, or I'm better than you, it would be Jesus. And he submitted himself to authority. How about you? Even saying that word authority in this country, there's something in us that just wants to rise up and rebel. And look where it's gotten us. It's a fractured nation with fractured families and fractured relationships and broken hearts and train wrecks and tragedies because the world in its wisdom does not know God. But there is an alternative. Number four, Jesus matured by the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus Christ, Christ means anointed of the Holy Spirit. His name tells us what power he lived by. So you can have the Holy Spirit when you're three or 13 or 23 or 33. You can be filled with the power of God and live a godly life because Jesus not only gives us a life to admire, he sends the spirit so that we might experience the power that he lived by. Furthermore, right after this section in Luke two, the Holy Spirit descends on Jesus at his baptism. In all of the Old Testament prophecies, Isaiah 11, two, the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. Isaiah 42, one, I put my spirit upon him. Isaiah 48, 16, the Lord has sent me in his spirit. And then Isaiah 61, one, which Jesus quotes to kick off his public ministry, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. Jesus lived a life of obedience, a life of service, a life of humility, a life that was a blessing to his family. Let me just close with this, I missed it. Jesus went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother, what? Treasured all these things in her heart. It is possible to have your children be a treasure in your heart. It is possible to have your grandchildren be a treasure in your heart. It requires you living by the power of the Holy Spirit, encouraging the members of your family to live by the power of the Holy Spirit and linking together by the grace of God to not only live a transformed life, but leave a transforming legacy. We love you, we want this for you. This is honestly, this is the whole reason our family planted a church. It was actually the, I didn't share this at the nine, we, uh, we planted this church because it was the kids' idea. And they serve at the church because they love the Lord and they love you. We are not a perfect family. They certainly don't have a perfect dad. But I'll tell you what, we want this church family to be a loving, healthy, welcoming, Bible-based, spirit-filled, relationally warm, build you up, not beat you up kind of church family for your family. And, and the key is really for all of us to worship. And so I'm gonna invite Pastor Dustin and the band forward at this time, and we're gonna sing and worship. If you're here with your spouse, hold hands while you worship. If you say, we can't do that, then hold both hands. You need it double, okay? <laughs> if your kids are here, bless them. Give them a kiss on the head. Put an arm around them. Let them know that they're loved. At this time, we're gonna collect our tithes and offerings and I thank you for your generosity so we can continue the ministry of our church family. And uh, as we collect our tithes and offerings and the band gets ready to lead us in worship, uh, also we will partake of communion. And this is to remind us that God came in a body, 
and shed his blood and had his body broken in our place for our sins. His name is Jesus. And he sends the Holy Spirit to live in your body and Jesus alone can forgive your sin. If you belong to the Lord Jesus, you've been adopted into the family of God. We welcome you. And you have God as your father who is always present to lead you, to guide you, to help you. And he has sent the Holy Spirit so that you can experience the life and the love of Jesus. So what we're gonna do at this time, we're just gonna prepare our hearts to worship, okay? We need to worship. Our hearts need to have Jesus as the center. Worship is where we center everything on Jesus. How does Jesus relate to you? How does he relate to your marriage? If you're married, if you're dating, how does he relate to your dating relationship? If you have children, how does he relate to your children? If it is your grandchildren, how does he relate to your grandchildren? If it is your work, how does he relate to your work? If it is your hobbies, how does he relate to your hobbies? What, who is the center of your universe? If it's God, then his love and his life will flow into your life so that you can experience the transforming power of God. Pastor Dustin, what's the first song you've got for us today, my friend? We're gonna be singing a song called I Stand in Your Love. Okay, let's pray for the people. Father God, as we prepare our hearts for worship, we invite the presence of the Holy Spirit to make us worshipers and to mature us. God, for the families that are hearing this, what things need to change so that there can be health in their relationship with you and one another. And God, please speak to these dear people as they sing to you in Jesus' good name, amen. If you live in or are visiting the Greater Phoenix Valley, please join us at the Trinity Church in Scottsdale, Arizona. You can also watch Pastor Mark live on Sundays, YouTube, Facebook, the app, or at markdriscoll.org. And as Pastor Mark always says, it's all about Jesus.